Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. 2020 is almost over. Um, right now it's Thanksgiving week, and I don't know whether to brace myself or sigh from relief. Like, how am I supposed to act? I feel like it's still March. Um, and I feel like every week there's so much happening. We had elections, then Pfizer and Moderna announcing their vaccine results. Elections are basically still happening. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Go it's on. Yeah. Over, over, right? Technically. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I just, I don't know. I feel like I can't catch a break. The world doesn't really, can't really catch a break. And then fun fact, where I am in Colorado, in and out opened. Um, and the first day it opened, guess how many hours people waited in line? 14. Yes. <laughs> Is it because you knew about this thing? I, I just saw something on Twitter, actually. I was <laughs> thinking, these people cannot get crazier. I know. I can't believe they waited that long. And then yesterday, my sister and my brother-in-law went, and they only waited an hour and a half. So. I was I mean, going to say, I mean, have you had an In-N-Out burger? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I have two in uh, yeah. Arizona. I mean, they're pretty good. As someone you know who grew up in California, I'd say they're pretty good. Um, I know there's I don't like think a forever like fourteen hour wait height. No, no, it doesn't. Um, and I and I can definitely say as it's expanded and going into other states like Arizona and Colorado, it's gotten not as good quality. Don't know if that's because I got older and it's no longer like a special treat, or if. Like, it's actually lower quality. Um, I know there's a huge debate with it versus Shake Shack. Um, I do think the burger is better than Shake Shack. I'll say that. But they're very different things. I don't think it's the same thing. Yeah. Now, when I was in the U.S. a few times, uh, when I was young, it used to be Sonics. Do you guys still have that? Yeah. Yeah. I used to go to that a few times, and then in and out came, and it became the new place. It was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we we you know on on this podcast we talk about healthy things and yet we are <laughs> <laughs> debating burgers and how to make you know whatever it improves joy, <laughs> um, which therefore improves your quality of life. Did I relate it back to the to that work? Yeah, that works. <laughs> okay, great. Um, Anyway, you already heard a little bit about who is going to be here, so let's just introduce this here. It's someone I consider him to be the unofficial person related to Global Caveat because he's been a supporter of us since day one and internet super friend and also friend I've met in real life. Um, Sienna, do you want to introduce who we have on the show today? Yes. Okay, so today we have neuroscientists, we have a Twitter famous, amazing cat dad, and I think you are quite the chef as well, judging from the stuff you post on your gram. Yeah. Um, we have Danny Beck, a clinical neuroscience PhD candidate in Oslo, Norway. His background is in psychology, forensic psychology, and cognitive neuroscience. His current work focuses on cardiovascular risk factors and their impact on the aging brain. <laughs> very, very happy to join you guys. Big fan of both of you, of course, and uh, the podcast. Uh, so yeah, I'm just honored to finally get my opportunity to talk to you both. Yeah, we're honored to have you here. I'm like, we're like, Diana and always are like, we need to get Danny on the pod. We need to get Danny on the pod, and then. Yes, we are finally getting you on here, so thank you for making time for us. <laughs> My pleasure. Yes, and to start things off, 
Susanna mentioned the time. Now we're recording on November 25th of 2020. And, you know, that's pretty late in 2020. So how 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 have you been? How's your 2020? How are things in Hogwarts? You know, 2020 has been one of the best years of my life. <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's been a terrible year to be globally attached to the internet and the news. And for everything to be happening with the pandemic from a global viewpoint, you're really attached to all the bad things that's going on. So generally, just the reference point or the baseline uh, of how good of a year it is, is lowered automatically. But, you know, this year I've published my first first author paper, I've, you know, Yay. Yay, round of thank you thank you uh gotten some invitations and won grants and a lot of really cool work related things have happened that have made me really enjoy the year but at the same time you know i've been working from home predominantly and things have been a bit tough for working from home and everything with the pandemic uh, making it so weird to have a social life but yeah Maybe best year of my life was overstated, but it's been a generally mixed year. Definitely a roller coaster year. Danny, let's not forget the best news of all, right? Whatever you published the paper, whatever you got grant, you got Twitter verified. Yeah. <laughs> I think the actual best news is his cat. Oh, that's yeah. right. You got a cat. That's the actual best. Let's, news. <laughs> let's not get yeah, confused yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure my girlfriend won't mind me saying that my cat is the best thing that's happened to me this year (laughs) (laughs) or my paper um but yeah definitely freya is the best cat that's ever lived she's just very fun and cuddly and uh, she's really improved working from home as well as made it more difficult to work from home but yeah (laughs) how cute i love seeing um your stories of her she's so she's a very beautiful cat yeah she's cute definitely yeah I feel like that definitely helps you get Twitter verified, right? It's actually yeah. her. <laughs> it might be. I might be pushed up my own platform soon. She gets more <laughs> likes and <laughs> engagement. That's funny. Well, Danny, let's talk a little bit about um, your work and your background. And so you have an interesting path, I think, because you've gone, you worked in various spaces. You weren't always in neuroscience, right? No, definitely. So... When I actually started out, it was psychology. That was my main interest. Uh, I was interested in how people behaved and their thoughts, uh, and also a more counseling aspect, uh, a clinical psychology aspect of people. But as I grew into the work and the research and became more academically involved and not just interest and curiosity, my interest quickly shifted to the more scientific parts of psychology uh, and human behavior. So I became slowly more interested in uh, neuroscience towards the end. And of course, there's a a big, complete other story in the middle with forensic psychology and crime and uh, psychiatry. But that was also part of the path towards neuroscience for me. And did you work in those areas when you were interested in psych um, and forensic psych and all those areas? Did you find yourself working in those spaces? Yeah, so after my um, bachelor's degree in psychology, I did a forensic psychology master's degree. And um, shortly after, I worked in a psychiatric facility. So uh, in England, they're called a secure unit. 
so I was in England for the whole bachelor's degree and master's degree period. And there I worked in a psychiatric facility and there it was a high and medium risk ward that I predominantly worked on. Uh, and so the people that you're working with are various people with mental disorders that have committed a crime. So they're actually mm. locked up quite high risk, which means they come in uh, very close to when they've had a psychotic episode. Um, or, you know, a really bad time in their life, but also they're criminals. So it's very challenging. And then how, how long were you working there before you then transitioned to academia? Yeah, so it didn't take too long. It was about uh, eight months of working at the psychiatric facility. Uh, it was quite a stressful job, actually. But my main reason for uh, rerouting wasn't just my interest in uh, neuroscience, but it was also that I didn't see a clear pathway uh, in the UK mm-hmm. where there's a good path for development. Uh, things were going to take too long. Uh, the connections and networking opportunities were not good, uh, and I wanted things to go faster. So I decided to look, <laughs> funnily enough, for another master's degree so that I could push a move to another country and also open doors uh, towards neuroscience. So I did another master's degree in cognitive neuroscience. Okay. And now you're getting a PhD. Yeah, now it's a PhD in neuroscience. That's interesting. And now, yeah. what is um, it in the brain that you love, Danny? Uh, well, for me, if I'm to think about everything that is inside of my body, I think the brain is the most interesting part of me and everyone else. You know, everything that I'm thinking and using to speak, uh, it, it all comes from, from this organ in the body. Um, so if I had to pick an organ to work with, it would be the brain. But generally, I've been interested in a lot of different sciences throughout my life. But I think coming from a psychological background, it made more sense to study the brain than, you know, a whale in marine biology or something. Mm-hmm. And what is it specifically that you are working on your research? Like, what what is this first author paper that you have now? Yeah. Okay, so specifically what I'm working on, uh, what my project entails is cardiovascular risk factors. Um, so what I'm looking at is how these impact the structure and function of the brain or, I mean, just generally uh, the health of the brain. Um, mm-hmm. So if we, for example, go back to what we started the podcast talking about, burgers, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, how we eat, uh, our diets, and some of the things we intake like smoking and the result of all that sonics and in and out burgers which changes our bmi all these factors are known as cardiovascular risk factors and you know research has shown that uh, these actually uh, impact the brain it's not just you know how we look and what we weigh and just like smoking impacts the lungs and many other organs these you know Cardiovascular risk factors also impact the brain. And one interesting part I'm looking at, which, you know, referring to uh, what you asked me about my first paper, but also what I'm working on for my second paper, uh, one interesting aspect is something called brain age prediction um, that I'm working on. So I'm guessing neither of you have heard about brain age prediction? No. No. Okay. So brain age prediction is basically a machine learning algorithm method of estimating the age of the brain. So what you do is you feed a machine, so to speak, uh, images of thousands of brains of people that have been scanned in a magnetic resonance imaging scanner. And all these images that you give uh, to the machine learning algorithm, you attach uh, an age 
tag to them. So the age of the individual that was scanned. And then you, so to speak, train this machine to learn how the brain looks with these different age tags and brains. And so that after you've got a trained brain age predictor, uh, you then give it your sample of your uh, patients or healthy control subject, and it takes a stab at estimating what their brain age is based on these images. So if you have a healthy person, however we define that right now, or let's say one of us, has their brain scanned and we put your brain through this brain age prediction algorithm, it will come back with a score of both your chronological age because we'll give it, you know, your age based on your biological birth. But then you'll also get an estimator of what it thinks you are. And another thing it gives you is the brain age gap, which is just the difference between these two numbers. So if we go back to what we spoke about earlier, about cardiovascular risk, um, what I'm looking at is basically, do these cardiovascular risk factors impact our brain age? And do people that, you know, take part in more unhealthy lifestyles, so to speak, have a higher brain age gap, a brain age that deviates more from our chronological age? And yeah, a lot of research that I've worked on brain age prediction before, a lot of people that I work with uh, as well, have, you know, done studies which include psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia and depression. And they have found that these things actually include a higher brain age gap. People that have mm. mental disorders uh, have an older looking brain. So these things age our brain. Um, uh, and that's what we see. Yeah. So what we're really looking at is that gap that you mentioned, right? Subtracting like whatever their chronological brain ages versus what it actually looks like based on that machine learning uh, method that you've mentioned. And then that gap shows a difference. Um, and it sounds like that gap is impacted by not only what you eat, um, but if you have mental illness, maybe even trauma or some disabilities related to your brain. So yeah. that's really interesting. How does that, um, I guess in a neuroscience community, then is there some sort of like value assigned to like, you kind of mentioned it, right? So bigger the age gap, the value seems to me is that more harm's been done. Is that right to say on the brain? Yeah, I mean, I mean that is basically uh, what we're looking at um, in essence. And, you know, this brain age gap, it can also uh, reflect positively, I guess. You could have a younger looking brain than what your chronological uh, age is. And some interesting research that's been done recently um, has shown that when women have children, several kids, that their brain actually looks younger after several children. So that's really interesting. And uh, another line of research is also uh, with uh, people or women with multiple sclerosis. Uh, MS has shown that people or patients with MS uh, actually having children helps uh, the brain. Uh, slow, it slows down those negative symptoms, I believe. So, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was between, you know, seven to 18 years of, of difference. Wow. Um, when you, so when you look at, when you say like the brain looks younger, I'm trying to visualize like what that would mean. So I'm thinking like lungs, right? Like we can tell uh, a lung that has gone through a lot. Like if the person who's had those lungs has smoked, um, if they're older, it just looks a lot more deteriorated, I guess you can say, than like a baby's lung, right? Yeah. Um, is that the same thing with the brain? Like you can take a look at the brain and it just looks different physically? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, you're basically when you're looking at MRI uh, images, you know, you're analyzing voxels, which are 3D pixels. And I'm unsure of how much, you know, it's still a machine learning algorithm of how much of the biology it really fetches when it's making these determinations, uh, rather than just learning how to assign different ages to the images. So I would assume, but I can't say with 100% confidence that you could easily see. But I mean, if we just eyeball a couple of images of the brain from someone who's young and someone who's old, then you can definitely tell yourself uh, just by the brain scan. You know, older people's brains, they usually have um, a bit of shrinkage. Their uh, cortex is a bit smaller. And when you're younger, uh, things aren't like that. And, you know, I'm mm. sure people listening might have seen images of uh, individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's. And, you know, there are noticeable differences uh, when it comes to how the brain looks in older age. Um, mm. But uh, I'm guessing brain age prediction is a bit better and makes uh, determinants slightly differently than we would. Mm-hmm. I think the you said earlier that women who have given or gone through multiple pregnancies seem to have like a lesser gap or younger brains or there seems to be some kind of protective factor there. Um, I wonder how much of that is partially that when you're pregnant, you are much more aware of your actions and your health behaviors, right? And I think that's an interesting thing because you're saying how there are these cardiovascular factors and a lot of them are seem to be related to things like diet or your actions, right? Um, are there, I mean, I get all things are yes and no, maybe, but are there things that people can do to try to make their brains younger without having to get pregnant? Like, I shouldn't go get an In-N-Out burger after this? <laughs> you should absolutely go to the drive through and ask for uh, babies instead of burgers. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, no. Uh, no, there are a lot of things you can do. I mean, this isn't something really that I want to turn into a pseudoscientific thing. There are, of course, things that need further research and we need evidence to establish uh, any claims that we make. But based on the research so far, my assumption is that if you have lower cardiovascular risk factors, if you don't have that, I mean, these are, you know, factual and evidence-based. If you don't have diabetes, if you don't smoke, um, if you, you know, live a fairly balanced life when it comes to dieting, and uh, and that just means, you know, healthy eating and a balanced nutrition, uh, nothing mm-hmm. advertised crazy like, you know, a weird diet on Instagram. Um, but we, we do see uh, that the evidence shows that you have a healthier and a um, yeah, a healthier brain and it influences so much of the body mm-hmm. at the same time. And this is kind of, you know, the main part of my project is looking at that heart brain axis and the link between our brains and our bodies. And, you know, for so long, from a philosophical point of view, we've kind of, some of us have grown up to view the brain as the mind being separate from the body and, you know, kind of a dualistic approach. And even in medicine, when we speak about how to take care of our bodies, we don't really consider the brain as an organ that gets influenced. Mm. But I mean, we have blood that gets carried to the brain. We have, you know, veins and arteries and, you know, they need to be as clean and efficient as any other part of the body in order to function properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, definitely I would say that there are things we can do we without going crazy and, you know, with living still with moderation. Uh, mm-hmm. We can make changes that, probably do have an impact long term 
And this is, you know, the difficulty. We need, we need longitudinal studies to look at this throughout people's lifespans. That's why the, I can't say definitively. But yeah. my guess is that, you know, if you have two different lives or trajectories of people that live unhealthy and healthy in terms of cardiovascular risk, then you'll see the output. But, you know, there's, of course, genetics. I might just be genetically predisposed to a disease uh, where the other person is not. And that's why some people get lung cancer and some people don't and why some people live unhealthy, very long lives and some people live healthy, short lives. We don't mm-hmm. have uh, the answer to everything. That, that brings me into, you know, contextualizing your work into sort of what Diane and I do, right, into this, this public health realm. Because I think a lot of what we talked about is individual behavior and given genetic factors, um, which are important and I think very important for us to talk about and then i think about you know other socioeconomic factors that don't really it takes a lot for that to change and it's not really based on individual like circumstance right so um i'm thinking about like for example when i grew up um my family didn't have a lot of money but the one thing that we did every sunday before we went to church was we would go to mcdonald's (laughs) and our family would always have mcdonald's on every sunday and it was what my parents could afford so you know obviously like growing up having mcdonald's every sunday probably not great for the body and of course my brain but then i think about like that's a very kind of sweet example but there's these harsh realities of people living in poverty they don't have access to healthy grocery stores or there's just so many things that overlap that are outside of individual control and I guess my question for you as a neuroscientist is you know how do you how do you want to see your work um, impact those factors as well yeah no it's a very tough question and definitely something that we have to uh, consider Uh, even when we you know give advice to people people lead different lives and have different hardships and you know one thing that I always think about as a you know person of color so to speak uh, looking at brain age and how the brain is affected is you know i already know what low socioeconomic status and experience of victimization and racism and all those things trauma does to a, pe- a person's psychological state um, never mind what my hypothesis would be that it does to brain age and how it impacts the brain because we know you know racism is a health issue So when I think about what I really want um, my work with neuroscience to be, and especially my project now, first and foremost, it's kind of a, what I would say, a preventative uh, treatment strategy approach. Um, You know, if I can't definitively say with my sample that is longitudinal throughout 50 years, say what, you know, the impact on the brain has had, what I can maybe do is tell people that so far from cross-sectional studies and what we've seen from these different cardiovascular markers in various studies separately is that they probably all have some kind of impact to a degree. So from a prevention or intervention strategy point of view, uh, my hope is that I would want people to just reduce the amount of stress and strain that they put uh, on their body, uh, both in terms of, you know, cardiovascular risk, uh, so to be healthy, but also the things that just generally that we think impact us negatively, like stress uh, and other issues. And then what you're doing then is you're adopting a strategy that in the long term might help you keep your brain looking and being younger, but also that might help you live longer. Uh, Of course, if we go back to what you mentioned with socioeconomic status, some people don't have that privilege. Some people can't afford gourmet foods or more salads and greens or, you know, uh, a healthy gym, personal trainer, lifestyle. They can't change the area they grow up in or the experiences they have. But yeah, those are, 
really public and governmental things I'd want to be resolved so that people are more on an even playing ground. But yeah, these things are not, there are scientific goals I can have, but I'm happy to jump ship to another field to try on. <laughs> You're telling me that as a neuroscientist, you can't fix all these problems that I, I yeah. just asked you to fix? <laughs> I'm afraid not. We we know very little. It's a young field. <laughs> I feel like it's tough. I mean, even in public health, we're struggling, right? Yeah. yeah. Really. Well, I mean, we can shout all we want and no one will listen. No, but no. maybe <laughs> with more information from all fields, including neuroscience, people will start to listen because we'll be like, and we have this and this and this and this. And here's all our stuff from all the other disciplines that yeah. support us. <laughs> like, Yeah, the disappointing yeah. thing is that there are people out there that will even take all this information, data mine it, and then tell you, do you know what? This individual that is from this ethnicity is smarter or better than someone from this group of ethnicity because we've looked at all the factors and all the data and what we just see is, you know, a difference in IQ or a difference in genetic predisposition to something. We don't see that they lived in different areas with different parenthood situations, different financial income. You know, these these are the things that I think are problematic in the way people do science. So, you know, my one hope outside is if we do start to collaborate with all these fields and put them together, is that people actually see the variables involved that lead to different outcomes and not the different outcomes of people and try to wonder, you know, why are people different based on how they look? This next question might be a little weird, um, but Dan and I, like with our guests, I don't know, somehow we find ourselves talking about researcher bias. Um, or not even researcher bias, but like whatever work we're doing, we talk about bias and really trying to tease out the, um, the fact that the word bias feels very negative in science. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dan and I also recognize like it doesn't have to be a negative thing, right? Um, but I think in the field like neuroscience where you are doing like machine learning and stuff, you want to eliminate bias as you can to get unbiased results. So this question might seem a little weird to you, but, but like, how do you you see yourself as a researcher? How does your personhood, like yourself, impact the way that you interpret and see your research and conduct your research and all of that? Yeah, I mean, bias is definitely uh, a thing and we are all susceptible to it, whoever you are and how much uh, you think you know about how you practice things. Uh, there's going to be bias in what you do and there might be bias already in the data that you haven't even introduced uh, so for me uh, I just try to be aware with every kind of step of a project and every step of the writing process that how I'm working introduces bias and the data I have might be biased a lot of what I can think of I put in into the paper into the discussion into the limitations uh, you know me working with data from here in Norway I mean the groups I have are largely groups that are healthier than the world I would say because mm-hmm. generally people here lead a healthier lifestyle but also it's predominantly uh, white and so I already know that there's a lot of things that's I'm working with that are skewed already. Uh, mm. So that's step one. And then step two is what I introduced. So for me, I think the key for me is just being aware and having kind of an introspective approach where you actually think about it. And once you do that, then you're kind of approaching things in a bit of a more humble way. And I think, you know, that, that's got to be one of the, the key things to reduce bias is to accept it exists in all of us and to, you know, come in with a bit of humility in how we carry out the research. 
part of me kind of wants to argue, right? Like you said, yeah. the research is already biased, and then you're bringing in your own bias, so the research is in your own bias, right? <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I think it's it speaks to, I think, you're, what you're trying to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you understand the current limitations and even um, great developments your current research has, mm-hmm. um, but you're able to bring in other aspects that maybe other people around you or in your field that are necessarily seen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, another key thing which uh, I'm very supportive of is that even though these exist and they don't have to necessarily be something with a negative stigma attached, if we treat them as things that exist that aren't that negative, then let's make our work more open, uh, more accessible, more reproducible. And mm-hmm. if we do that, then, you know, we have a way of reducing the bias just by how many methods and people are approaching the same uh, data and the same methodology. Um, so that's another key thing, I think, re- reproducibility and how open we are about the process that we in which we do science. Yeah, transparency is key. Mm. You sure you want to come to the U.S.? <laughs> uh, only, only for some In-N-Out burgers, but I'm not waiting. I'm, I'm not waiting 14 hours. Well, there's one right close to LAX, right? And so you can fly in, come out, grab an In-N-Out, fly back out. I mean, that yeah. will be about 14 hours. <laughs> Just getting yeah. to the airport, getting through, like getting here, and then going. I mean, you don't have to stop. Can you have to stop to consider that I am also. Arab, so the airport wait oh. will also be 14 hours. That's oh. right. <laughs> so it's a 20, 28 hour wait. Oh. I know, and I, yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That's my privilege talking here, right? Like, oh, I'm like, oh, and grab a burger and come back out. I mean, if I'm, if I'm lucky enough, I'll get a good cop, bad cop situation where one of the cops bring me a in and out burger. And <laughs> You're like, this is exactly what I came for. Thanks. <laughs> uh, no, when okay. when things when things settle again, I'll be happy to come to the US at least to um, see family and friends, and maybe it'll be a a Biden's America, whatever that means to you, right? Yeah. Um. Do you have yeah. anything that you would like to share with our listeners? I mean, is there anything you want to put out into the world? You are finally being on our podcast. <laughs> oh, let's see. A lot of uh, opportunity here. No, I I mean, again, I want to just say, you know, I appreciate you both. And, you know, uh, I love coming on here and talking to you both and would be happy to be on the podcast again. Um, I don't have like a general take-home message for people if, if they are listening to me. But, yeah, prioritize your mental health and take take care of your brains, I guess I have to say. Um, and I'm happy also to answer any follow-up questions to the podcast if people want to either get in touch through the Global Caveat Twitter account or through Instagram. Uh, I'm in both places and will happily answer questions that people have. My DMs are open. Great. Um, real quick before we end everything, because you mentioned that people should take care of their mental health, what are you doing? during this crazy 2020 of a year to take care of your mental health okay so step one get a cat (laughs) (laughs) no 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 i i got a cat because uh it was a long-term plan and we always wanted a cat don't get a pandemic cat it's it's not a christmas present you know um no uh some of the things i do 
let's see, I am getting better at respecting the time that I work, the amount that I work, and I'm being very kind to myself regarding the hours that I do not work. That's the first thing. Uh, I don't overwork myself. Another thing is uh, doing something uh, that is either a hobby or good for you, uh, objectively speaking. Um, and for me, it's running. It doesn't have to be a long run. You don't have to be good at it. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a type of exercise that uh, you're doing for any you know, health benefit. It's really is just a good way to get out um, without being social with people and without really introducing a infection problem or going out for fresh air you can take a hike uh, that's another thing i've been doing i've been hiking through the woods and the forest of course that comes with needing the privilege of having those things around you but find something that you enjoy that you can do that takes your mind off what's happening other than that you know the situation in norway and oslo is a bit different to a lot of countries and cities around the world but for me i have a very small cluster of friends um, that uh, are part of my you know pandemic cluster group so i have two or three friends that we do have dinners and movie nights and stuff if this is something that's possible for you try and you know spend time with with those people uh other than that you know i've just been you know business as usual so uh, i'm not really the best person to ask about uh, mental health advice given that i'm a boring person you know i like just being at home and, and relaxing <laughs> well you know everything you said i'm like this is great because relaxing, we think, I, I think you're totally right how you said, like, we think of the brain and the body as separate. Well, while your body is relaxing, you're actually feeding your brain healthy, healthy things, right? Like you're relieving the stress and um, helping your brain in some way, maybe, I don't want to say def definitively, right? Maybe getting younger, but you're, I'm just going to say you're feeding your brain in more than one way. Yeah, and, and sleep. Don't forget to sleep. People oh, always yeah. un <laughs> undervalue the power of sleep. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank well, you, Kenny. That was really yeah, thank you. I learned thank about the research, which was very yeah. awesome. So thanks for coming on here and talking about yourself and your work. Oh, it's a pleasure. And if people want to hear more about me for the next, um, if there's a next time, we can talk more about the psychiatric facility and some of the things that happened there, like the uh, patients was doing dirty protests and smearing poo everywhere um, all the time that someone tried to sneak drugs through a vending machine. There's a lot of stories there. Um, there's even a story where the pool table balls were left out and people managed to put them in socks and smash the whole receptionist area up. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories. Maybe we can leave that as a snippet for people and uh, <laughs> take it off next time. <laughs> yeah, I think... Dan, I'm thinking of part two over here. Yeah, oh, sure. Go. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. That's the episode. Thank you so much, Danny Beck, for talking with us. As a reminder, um, as I said, you can reach him on social media, on Twitter. It's underscore Danny Beck, right? D-A-N-I-B-E-C-K. And yes. then on Instagram, it's at underscore Danny dot Beck. And you'll know it's him on Twitter because of the check mark. And you'll know um, how to him on Instagram because you'll see his cat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the cat is also on Twitter, to be fair. That's true. Yeah, yeah. People on Twitter spoke. Um. Yeah, he's now the, the cover photo for Twitter. Oh, um, yeah. yeah.
And uh, you can also reach out to us if you want, if you have any questions or anything else at our email, globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. Um, you can also reach out to us with beautiful glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts with five stars, only five stars, nothing else. That's the only way I accept that form of communication. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> If you have any, if you have a less than five star review, just email it to us, please. Thank you. Oh my god! <laughs> if it's less than five stars, it's a complaint. And this is this is not biased whatsoever, right? This is our very unbiased method. Of- Listen, we want to have funding, so we need five star reviews. <laughs> so true. And thank you all to our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. Special thanks to Cordell Glass Hot Cocoa for producing our music. Thanks for listening.